We're finishing our series on Genesis 1 to 3 today. We're going to return after Christmas to look at some of the issues raised in these passages that we haven't got round to. Um, but really, we're rounding off our, our close, kind of detailed look at these three chapters. And so to start today, it's pretty great, good to recap where we've been. What have we seen so far in this series? Well, of course, we've seen that God created the universe, pretty key in Genesis 1 to 3. He created the universe, as we've seen, to be his home. Um, in the universe, God focuses in on planet Earth then, uh, and it's in, a four, it's in a state of, what, what was it, in a state of... Where's Becca? Chaos. Yes, it was in a state of chaos. Becca acted out so well with others last, last week. And the chaos was formless and empty. And so God brought into the formlessness order and structure and form. And he separated the light and the darkness. And he separated the waters above from the waters below. And he separated the land from the sea. And he brought form to the formlessness. And then he uh, filled the emptiness, the sun, moon and stars into the darkness and light. And then the birds and fish into the waters above, the waters below and the animals and humans onto the land. And uh, everything seemed to be going along absolutely fine, but then he did something unexpected. Rather than finishing the job himself, he uh, took and enlisted the help of some of his own creatures, human beings, us, and commissioned us to join him in his forming and filling uh, task. Fill the earth and govern it, he said to Adam. As humans, we were made in God's image. One of the things that means, as we've seen, is to do the things that God does. And also we were called to live with him in his temple, in his home, in the the permanent and uninterrupted presence of our creator. What a privilege. What an opportunity. As we found out last week, we threw this privilege back in God's face. We completely blew it. And the relationship that we were designed to have with our creator was always meant to be one of dependency on God. We were never created to be God's peers or certainly not to grasp for his position, but that's exactly what we did. And we believed the serpent's lie, and in a bid to become like God ourselves, we rebelled against God, and we brought a whole new type of chaos into the world, the chaos of willful disobedience against our generous, benevolent God. And that's what we got to at the end of last week. And so the question left for us then is, well, what's God going to do about it in Genesis 1 to 3? We move on to Genesis 3, we, we see that answer fully. And actually that answer can be summed up, I think, in one word. And that word is death. It's what God promised the man uh, that would happen, death. Remember back to Genesis 2, 16 to 17, this is what God said right at the beginning. He laid it out as clear as day. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, I don't know about you. I know I'm pretty sure everyone, whether you've been in this series or not, has come across this before. But imagine you come to this fresh and you you see the story for the first time. And then you find out the conversation with the serpent is going a certain way. And uh, you think, wait a minute, what's going to happen here? I think you'd imagine in your mind from what God said, a a sort of Snow White scenario kind of kicking off, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, the story of Snow White, she she eats the fruit, isn't it? It's poisoned and she, she drops down dead straight away. And you'd probably imagine... Something similar is happening as Eve takes the apple, she takes a bite of it, and she swoons into a slumber that even love's true kiss will not be able to uh, reverse. Oh, well, it's not, it is, it's not very sweet, it's not really, it's horrible. Anyway, um, but that's not what happens at all in the story, although it might have sent a leading in that direction. Genesis 3, 6 to 7 is what it says. The woman having talked with the, the serpent, it says the woman was convinced. 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Does she fall dead? No. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Seems actually that the death that follows the sin of Adam and Eve, because it is there, as we'll see, is a bit more multi-layered than we might expect. The Apostle Paul, uh, in the New Testament, the book of Romans, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 3 today, and then quite a bit of time in Romans 5 and 6 as well as we're jumping around, so just be aware of that, that kind of uh, trajectory. But in Romans 5.12, Paul reflects on this, and he says this, he says, Adam's sin brought death. So we know that is the case. But how? It's not just a falling down dead, instantly death. It's a different type of death. And what I really want to look at today is what kind of death did Adam and Eve's sin bring into the world? And I'll be honest with you, it's going to be quite tough going uh, for the first half of today's message because as we're kind of going to see, it's going to lead us to have to think about some of the worst parts of human existence. These things will affect us all. We'll, I'm sure the things I said will affect us all in different ways, some more immediately than others, and they're all negative and all regrettable, uh, the things that we, we focus on death. But I'm not just coming over here to kind of make you feel bad this morning. That's not the plan, just to kind of force home some hard truths and let's just go and be stoic about it. No, we're then going to look on the back of that at the opposite of death. We're going to look at life as well. And at the end... We're going to respond to the God who offers us the opportunity to be brought from one state, from death to life. Because the more actually we can stare death in the face and stand up to the horrors of it and say, this is what it is, the more we'll understand how the reversal of what Jesus did is so amazing for us. And actually, as I'm going to say at the end, I'm going to call us to respond at the end, if you want to respond, to say, a God that would bring me from that state to that state, well, he deserves everything from me. I'm going to ask us to respond uh, at the end as well. So let's brace ourselves then for the bad news. We ready? You're a hardy lot. I can tell from the the temperature offering in here that you're a hardy lot. Um, So we're ready. Um, I think there are three different elements to death that we find in Genesis 3. Let's let's go through them together, okay? The first is God's death sentence itself. Now, as I said a minute ago, Eve doesn't drop dead when she eats the fruit, but we've got to understand there was a literal element to this because these guys did die. According to Genesis 5, regarding Adam, it did take a while, another 900 years or so actually, Um, but Adam and Eve did eventually die. They had funerals. Um, They were no more on planet Earth. You might think, well, of course, that's the case. That's what happens to everyone. But no, in the flow of the story, that wasn't what was meant to happen. As those who've been made in God's image and brought into relationship with God, these guys were supposed to live forever. That was how it was. That's how it was meant to be. There was a physical death that went along with this sort of stuff. However, we've got to understand that when in Genesis, and later in the Bible it talks of death, it is not just talking about the act of dying. I think most of the references we find in Scripture to death are talking about death more as a kind of symbol, the physical act of dying as a symbol of a type of life lived, let's use this phrase, I use this a few times I think, lived in the shadow of death, a kind of life that then becomes defined by death. 
Death is a symbol. Yes, physical death is involved, but there's more to it than that. And as we look on, we see a little bit more of what that, that looks like. So the first punishment in the passage is for God to follow through on his threat. He said, if you eat it, you'll die. Yes, that is what happens a little later than you might expect, but it is what happens. Uh, but then we see the first deliberate act of God to punish their sin is he kind of lines up the key suspects. who well, are not suspects. They've been caught red-handed here. And he declares punishment specifically on each one of them. And uh, they're, they're kind of mainly in the form of curses. So firstly, we see a death sentence. Secondly, we see a series of curses. And as we see for people, uh, this entails suffering and futility. So what does he do? Well, he lines them up, uh, and he lines up the serpent first. We're not going to go too much into the curses on the serpent, but he curses the serpent, and then he moves on to Eve. And uh, in Genesis 3.16, this is what he says to Eve uh, as, a, as a punishment for, for her sin. It says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. As usual in Genesis, quite a lot going on here. I'm not going to be referring to the second half, but the first bit of the verse uh, particularly. And there's there's a word that sticks out there like a sore thumb, if you excuse excuse the analogy. What's the word in the first half of that verse? Pain. It's pain. There's pain in the first bit. There's pain in the second bit. And it's a very specific pain. It's the pain of childbirth. But it's got to be noted that Pain as a whole is a major feature of this world of death that we live in. And that will be for men and for women. And whether you be, uh, bore, bared, I think it's bore, bore children or not. Okay. Now, this is such a feature actually of the world that one of the major religions uh, bases its entire philosophy about this reality. In, in Buddhism, um, the, the first of the four noble truths of Buddhism, that a Buddhist would say, this is the first thing you must understand about life to get anywhere, is this. It's called dukkha. It's called life is suffering. Okay? For a Buddhist, they say, that's what you need to understand first and foremost before you can get to any sort of wisdom. No, I wouldn't go that far. But you know what? I can see the attractiveness of that kind of uh, philosophy, that kind of thought. And I think there is a degree of wisdom in there. Because surely we'd all agree with the basic uh, reality that human lives, our lives, are punctuated by pain and suffering at almost every point. For the woman, when God's talking to the woman, he focuses on the physical element of pain. So he talks about physical pain. But of course we know that uh, pain and suffering can be much more than just physical pain, although that's very, very important and significant. It also can involve emotional pain. And interestingly, when God talks to the man and uh, brings curses regarding the man uh, and his sphere of influence, it focuses more on the second time, on emotional suffering. Let's go to then what God says to the man in verses 17 to 19. This is what God says to Adam. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Now, notice in both these cases with the man and woman, they're not cursed directly by God. But in this case, the ground is cursed. And this curse, first of all, it leads to more physical pain, unfortunately. Uh, for, for Adam, he's got to work harder, okay? It says that uh, his, his struggle, uh, you will struggle to scratch a living from it, the New Living Translation gives us. There's, there's a harder work involved uh, for this guy. 
grasp. And I think the, the feel of this passage is more on an emotional burden that we often associating with, associate with our work, which is the burden of futility and frustration that we find in our work, whether that's paid employment or other things that we aim to do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we can all identify with this, can't we? It's not just that work is hard, whichever you're trying to do, it can be hard, but it often seems so incredibly pointless. You slave away day after day for what? Well, just to return to the very ground that you're working in Adam's case. I was a teacher, secondary school teacher for seven years. And in my school, when I got there, uh, the headmaster had been there for 30 years. Okay? He's one of those guys who'd shaped the school completely. It was, when he came there, it was totally unrecognizable to what it was when I got there. And he'd uh, taken it from being a really small school to a really large school, almost 2,000 students. He'd built from a, a couple of buildings. I think they moved sites. It was a massive, sprawling complex. Put a sixth form on there. He'd removed it from the LEA. He'd done his own thing. He did a, in many ways, he'd done a fantastic job. But just before I left, we had an Ofsted, which I'm sure, whether you're a teacher or not, uh, I know Pete knows about it, Sarah knows about this sort of stuff, but others will, will be familiar with the concept. The inspection comes, and we didn't do very well, uh, to put it mildly. And uh, on, on that occasion, because we didn't do very well, it gave the authority to, uh, to an outside body to come in and take the school over. We became an academy. And uh, what the academy did was they came and they removed the head, who'd been there for 30, 37 years or, or so. Um, but not just they removed him, they wiped out all evidence that he'd ever stepped foot in the school. It was incredible. They, they, they changed the name of the school, they changed the uniform of the school, and he was just kind of, he just disappeared. No one talked about him anymore <laughs> for the last couple of months that I was there. It was an amazing and, and kind of awful thing. And I mean, there was, I'm not commenting on the pro. I think there was, in that case, reason for something like that to happen. But for me, it really struck me as a picture of, this kind of sense of futility to our labors. We work hard and we do all this stuff and we're doing great. And then suddenly, whether it's done by Ofsted or whether it's done by just dying, it's all gone, wiped away. There's a whole book of the Old Testament given over to this whole uh, idea. And it's called Ecclesiastes. I'll just read you a, a jolly little passage from Ecclesiastes. This isn't one of those ones you kind of want in your Bible reading notes in the morning to, to wake you up feeling chipper, okay? But this is what the teacher, the author of the book, says. He says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. They must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. That was written thousands of years ago. Can you see how perceptive that is and how, how, how the thoughts that that carries today? And it's this whole feel that we get here. Death, living in the shadow of death, there is a sense of pain and struggle physically and emotionally. And emotionally, a lot of that comes from this sense of futility and frustration and meaninglessness. That's the second thing. Third and final thing, uh, there's one other element to what God does, and it involves the loss of God's presence. Because God, uh, he carries through on his threat about death. He has these curses relating to the, the, the people involved in the fall and the sin. And then he also 
expels Adam and Eve from the garden. He, he kicks them out. Genesis 3, 23 to 24. That's what it says. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to God the way to the tree of life. It's funny, we, we often think, don't we, cherubim, that's cherubs. Think Valentine's Day, okay? A little kind of puffy-faced sort of wings, usually a bit of a harp on a cloud. Really friendly chaps, okay? <laughs> Not here, okay? Massive swords. These are meant to be the most scary, like, bouncers you can ever imagine, okay? What's the message? The message is this expulsion from the garden is absolutely final. You are not getting back in. This is not a temporary arrangement. Now, the kicking out of the garden is clearly linked to the loss of the tree of life. That's definitely in there, again, to the fact that these guys are going to die. But actually, it speaks also of, I think, the worst thing about living in the shadow of death. And it would be that life outside the garden, as we talked about quite a bit in this series, is life lived in isolation from God. The garden, as we said before, is, was the place where God walked. He walked about as in the cool of the day. It was, he was just at ease with creation, including humans. It was the place where heaven and earth were overlaid just perfectly naturally. But as they're cast out from Eden, things are really different. If you read the book of Genesis and the early parts of the Old Testament, you can just see the difference uh, there. And sometimes it doesn't seem so different because it's kind of like what we see in the rest of history in many ways, but it is different from the God walking about in the garden. You've got suddenly, yeah, God speaks to some people, but it's kind of just this guy here and this lady here and this person here. And God even appears to some people. But you know what? He has to go through some pretty, pretty tricky maneuvers to do so. I mean, squeeze yourself into a burning bush. That seems like a, an ordeal to me. So when he talks to Mo, when he meets Moses, when he goes in a dream in, uh, uh, for, um, for Jacob, it's few and far between. These are isolated occurrences. But you see, one of the defining features of this living death is an isolation and separation, not just from the tree of life, but from the author of life, from the living God. And we've got to say this, while this is terrible in this life, we've got to recognize that there are consequences to this even after our physical deaths. And the, the Bible is very clear on this. Because at the point of our death, this separation, this isolation becomes final and it becomes total. And the Bible often refers to that state, a state of eternal separation from God. And that's what it's getting at when it talks about hell. I know in the Middle Ages, people had all sorts of, uh, I don't know if fun's the right word, but drawing uh, images of what they thought were like devils with skewers and doing sorts of torture stuff. Okay, And sometimes we can think, oh, this is a bit silly, like... Like, that's not, how can we think about something like that? Well, the Bible doesn't go in for those sort of images. That's kind of Middle Ages stuff. But the Bible talks about something much worse than, than de devils with pitchforks. The idea of being separated from your creator forever. And while that element of death might seem like the most nebulous and far off to us, that surely, however you would imagine that, is the most awful sense of death there could possibly be. So to summarize then, the death that enters the world through human sin involves physical death, but it goes further than that. It involves pain and suffering, futility and frustration, and an isolation and separation from God. It's heavy stuff. 
So into that heavy stuff, this is what Jesus says in John 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In the world of death, Jesus knew what was going on. Death, 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 everything defined by death. What is God himself comes down, he says this. What have I come to do? There's death everywhere. I've come to bring life. I've come to bring the opposite of what you see around you. Jesus had no qualms in diagnosing the human condition as it was. You guys are living lives marked and stained by death because of your sin, because of your rebellion against God. But what he claimed to bring was a complete turnaround of the situation. Life. Not just being alive, but living in its fullest sense. As I said at the start, when we look full in the face of death in all its horror, we can then start to understand the, the amazing hope that Jesus offers because his life is an actual reversal of all three of those elements that we have seen. So let's now focus on that. If death was defined as we've seen, what is the life that Jesus brings us to find by? Well, it's the opposite. Let's go through each one in turn and see. And you'll be glad to hear, you know, this is a little cheerier, okay? Good, you've done well so far. But I also want to say to you, this comes with a responsibility for us as well. And we're going to get onto that at the end. How do we come before a God who deals with all of that and brings us all into what we we're about to see? I'm going to ask that question right at the end. So let's look at life then. What is the life that Jesus brings? Uh, what, is, what does it involve? Well, firstly, it's a life beyond death. Whereas our sins mean that each of us, each of our lives will end, Jesus, Jesus offers a hope that will go beyond that. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. So, so beautifully put by Paul here. Jesus broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. I think that sums it all up. Brilliant. He's illuminated the way to life and immortality uh, through the good news. It's fantastic news for us as people. I wonder if there's some of us, though, that say, yeah, yeah okay, that's fantastic news. That's, that's, that's what every human being wants, isn't it? Look back through history, like uh, the fountain of eternal youth or the search for the tree of life from the Spanish conquistadors. Throughout history, there's been things about this stuff. It's like the ultimate human, uh, human need or desire. And some might say, well... Yeah, okay, that's interesting. It's good, but it's too good. It's like it's too good to be true. It's what we all need. It's all what we all want. In a world where advertising and marketing offers us promises of pretty much everything and anything that there is, and we all know that those promises pretty much usually prove totally hollow, well, Jesus' words could come to us as the ultimate sales pitch. What do you want more than anything? I want to be able to survive death. Brilliant, fantastic. Here you go. Sign a dotted line. In the culture we live in, it, it can look like that sometimes. Which is why it's impossible to underline too much that Jesus didn't just speak a message here. He didn't just pull out of his bag. What do these guys want? Oh, I know what the unique selling point I'm going for is. Hey, life after death. No, he didn't. He acted this out. He said it. And then what did he do? He said, you can beat death. You can get to the other side. He beat death himself. He rose again from the dead. I know for many of us, that, that kind of phrase would just trip off our tongues. We've got to cherish it. We've got to hold on to it. If you, if you think, look, no, this is just a stone. This is too good to be true. I understand that completely. I think that's a, a, a really strong objection to Christianity. Or it would be if it wasn't that there's recorded evidence, both inside and outside the Bible, that the guy who said this came back from dead himself. 
He took the, stormed the castle and offered us the keys. There's one element of the life that Jesus offers, though, is certainly a life that goes beyond the grave. If you'd, if you'd like to look into that more, I would love to talk to you about that. If you think evidence for the resurrection, we'd love to talk about that to you. Please come and talk to some of the guys at the site here uh, later. But just as the death, you see, that Adam brought wasn't just a future death, the life that Jesus brings is not just a future life either. For those who choose to follow Jesus, it's like the life of the future reaches in to our lives here and transforms our lives from lives in the, the shadow of death into lives lived in the light of life. And so we see that as we go on as well, as he reverses the other two things. Secondly, then, the death, living in the shadow of death is suffering and futility. Living in the light of life that Jesus brings provides us meaning even in our suffering. It's an amazing thing. Our culture today, our culture does all that it possibly can to, to insulate us from suffering and from pain. And you know what? In many ways, it does a good job. And I'm sure that for, for most of us, we would be happy of some of the consequences of living in a society like that. I don't know if you often dwell on the fact, what would it have been like to have been born in a, in a different millennium or something? And it's like, it seems all very romantic. There could be castles and knights and things. And then you think, ah, yes, but there was cholera and smallpox and all those things. It just doesn't seem so attractive, does it? Um, we live longer now than people have lived in the past. Many of the agonizing illnesses of the past are now just that. They're things of the past. Our beds are comfier. I often think of going to bed at night, I'm really thankful for my bed. <laughs> These pillows, they're really much more comfy than what they used to have in the old days. Our leisure time, <laughs> just give you an insight into my psychology. Um, <laughs> our leisure time is more relaxing. Our work for almost all of us is far less manual. You know the pinnacle of it all, where we've got to insulating us from pain and suffering? Netflix. There it is, right there. I remember when we didn't just have, it wasn't just five channels, there were four. I know some of you will remember that there were less than that one time. In the, I mean, we are doing castles and knights at that time. But anyway, um, yeah, all right. I knew I, was, I wasn't looking at you guys. Anyway, no, no, I'm just looking over here. <laughs> I mean, you can seriously sit in front of the telly for like a month, uh, being insulated completely from the harsh realities of life and not even get bored. Because I'll be honest, pretty impressive telly going on. I mean, the society has, has done a reasonably good job on this stuff. But there's, there's, a, there's a massive drawback to all this. Because as our culture has tried to alleviate one element of death, it has driven us deeper into the flip side that we've already talked about. Yes, we get a lot of our suffering relieved in the short term, but we have our meaning taken away at the same time. Life is even more futile in the modern age than it has ever been. And now no one's going to trick you about that. They're not going to say, oh, no, it's not. There is purpose honest. They're not very honest. Oh, no, of course there's no purpose. Don't be so silly. You're talking about purpose and meaning. But it's just a small drawback. Keep watching Netflix. Everything's going to be fine. The problem is is it's not a small drawback. It's absolutely huge. And it's particularly huge when we understand that however insulated we can be from suffering by modern life, we can't escape it. It can delay it for a while, but we can't escape it. It will come. Some of us will know that already. It has already come. For those of us here, who, I mean, I class myself in this strategy, who modern life has insulated me from a lot of the, the, the suffering that many would go through. You know what? It will be down the road for me. I, I recognize that. And when you have a small sense of meaning, that suffering will become impossible to endure. 
What Jesus does is the complete opposite of what our culture does. Jesus doesn't insulate us from suffering, not in this life anyway. In fact, he tells us very clearly, you want to follow me, you will suffer. That's how it is. Take up your cross and follow me. But what he does is he transforms that suffering by giving it a purpose, by giving us meaning in our very suffering. Yes, of course, the promise of Jesus, the life of Jesus is is a future life that will have no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain. And we live in this like middle bit, but as the life reaches in, yes, there's still suffering, but even in the suffering, we can know meaning. So followers of Jesus throughout the ages have been able to say with a completely straight face, we rejoice in our sufferings. Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it like this. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, sufferings in other words. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. There's meaning even in when we suffer. Jesus has flipped the whole thing on its head. The death that Adam handed on to us brings us suffering and futility. The life that Jesus offered for us brings us meaning even in our suffering, even before the suffering itself is released later. Third thing Jesus does then is he regains for us God's presence. Again, I've said loads about this in the series, and so I'll be brief here, but this amazing benefit of our life in Jesus again, cannot be overstated. And I've mentioned in, in talks done before about how Peter was kind of enraptured in the idea of the, 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 the presence of God, the temple, the church of the temple. And we talked about how Paul was, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians, dwelling place for God's spirit. So just to cover all the bases of New Testament writers, what does John think of it? Okay, let's, let's just show you. I want to enforce this to you. John also, like the others, was enraptured by this idea of, when I know Jesus, I get his presence. 1 John 4.15, this is what John says. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. Wow. Again, just try to take yourself out of familiarity with these things. Just let your mind wander. Have God living in them, and they live in God. That is a wonderful and mysterious and astonishing thing to say. Listen, the life that Jesus offers, you might have heard this at and talk after talk in this in this series but please hear it again it is not just a way of thinking that has psychological benefits to us it's a life that is lived in genuine interaction with god himself and i'll be honest it's incredibly hard to define what that looks like and it's going to look really different for different people but for me again speaking as honest as i can i don't wake up every day uh, kind of say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Way. I feel a tangible presence of God in my bedroom. I, I just don't do that. But when I do get those glimpses of God at work in my life, which I do, when I do get that sense of his presence with me in what I'm involved in and with us in what we're involved in, as we talked about last time, you know what, just changes everything. Get futility gone. Like God is with us. His presence is with us. Seriously, guys, we don't have to live in isolation from our Creator anymore. Again, it's a kind of halfway house. It will be perfect in the future, but even now, God rushes in. We are His temple. We can know His friendship again, even His presence. It's a crucial part of the life that Jesus offers us. So let's conclude and wrap it up, and then let's respond uh, to, to this, this message. If you're a Christian here, I want you to be clear on something. You are someone who has been brought from death to life. That's who you are. 
Your life was lived in the shadow of death. It was defined by pain, suffering, futility, frustration, and isolation from your creator. And now it's lived in the light of life and it has been given meaning, purpose, hope, and the joy of knowing God's presence through his Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, you know what? Everything I've just said could be said of you because the offer is available to you too. So what should we do? How should we respond? Well, I think the response kind of does itself in a sense. I think a very sensible response here would be to say, I'm going to turn away from sin because that brings death and I'm going to give everything to this Jesus who's brought me to life. And we've, as I said, we spent some time in Romans today, but I want some of us in, this, in a moment to pray through something that Paul says in Romans 6, which seems a very fitting response to this. I'll, I'll read it to you. Romans 6, I think it's verse 13. Paul says this. See if you can spot the link to today's uh, talk. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. There it is, you see. This is his response. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For, for Paul, this, the applying to today's talk is immensely practical and completely radical. For those who have been brought from death to life, what do we do? We offer ourselves to God. All of us. We give ourselves to God. It's another way of saying what is the foundational thing of being a Christian. is saying, Jesus is Lord. He's not just someone I'm kind of fond of. He's not someone who's helped me out a little bit. Cheers, mate. No, you're in charge now. And he, he, he lands it in very practically of saying, and what that means is we give him ourselves. We give him our hands and we give him our lips and we give him our feet and we give him our sexual organs and we give him our ears and we give him our heads and all of us, the parts of our body to God as instruments of righteousness. And I want to end just by encouraging you just to do that. And so I'd say if you want to, uh, say today, look, I want to offer myself to God again. As this God has brought me from death to life. I want to do that, offer myself to him today. And it could be the thousandth time you've done that. could be the first time you ever choose to do that. I want to ask you to stand and I want to pray with you.